Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. I believe we have Dick Gordon on the line. Hello, Dick. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good to talk to you. It's been a while since we last spoke. Yes. So, as you're a seasoned veteran to Biota Live, you know we have some news and notes, then we can get into this evening's topic. If you, oh, we have another caller on the line. That's Jeffrey. Oh, hello, Jeffrey. Good to talk to you. We can talk a little bit about spiders. (laughs) Have you had a chance to listen to last week's podcast? Or last, sorry. No, I haven't. No, Ah. I haven't. So when we get to that in the news and notes, I'll, uh, I'll defer to you for your ideas with regards to that. But if folks would like to participate, the call-in number is 646-200-0640. There is a live chat session that I'm just starting if you're listening in live by Blog Talk Radio and you don't want to call a U.S. number. A number of bits of news and notes. The next episode, Friday, November 14th, 8 p.m. Pacific, Surviving an Artificial Life Winter, with the current situation of the international economy, I've been receiving emails and occasional uh, tweets and things on Facebook with regards to what will happen to artificial life as uh, particularly the tech economy starts to drop away, if it hasn't already happened. And I have my own views with regards to this, and I know a number of others in the community have views. Uh, I've actually talked about this a little bit in the past two podcasts, both with Gerald de Jung and with Bruce Damer in terms of what we can learn from the 1999 Biota 3 video uh, versus the way things are now. But that will be the topic on November 14th at 8pm Pacific, Surviving an Artificial Life Winter. Graytham News. Well, Graytham Boston will meet this Monday, November 3rd at 6pm to 9pm at the Asgard Irish Pub at... 350 Massachusetts Avenue, Central Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts. The uh, presenter this month will be Dr. Shivakumar Wistathan, who will be talking about, let me read the abstract here, the ideal delivery problem in evolutionary development algorithms. We have a third caller. Hello, third caller. Hello there, Tom. It's Gerald. Ah, Dr. Sagan, good to speak to you this evening. At 4 a.m., I might add. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the times have changed. Hi. Who's here today? Jeffrey. And we have Dick Gordon on the line as well. Okay. Hi, Hi, Dick. Hi. How are you? Good. Good. Pretty early for you. I'm getting ready to go to bed here. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyway, to finish up the uh, Grayson Boston news, uh, a wide variety of interesting stuff that this doctor is going to present with regards to... Um, the distinction between genotype-phenotype mapping on evolutionary adaptation. And it looks like an interesting talk with regards to computer simulation, the insights that he got from this. I received correspondence today from Justin Lyon. In fact, I've received uh, on and off again correspondence from Justin Lyon. I was hoping to have him on the call this evening, but he's still in Iraq. Um, he's been going backwards and forwards. Do you, do you track Justin's movements, Gerald? 
Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I, I've, I think I've seen pretty well the same number of emails as you have. seems to be a, a fascinating project that he's connected with in Iraq currently. Well, the project, the public project that I can know about, I'm sure he's doing other things in Iraq as well. But the American University and the Deputy Prime Minister, who apparently is a Biota fan, I have to confirm that with Justin Lyon, um, but he has a degree in simulation mathematics from the University of Liverpool, and he's also the Deputy Prime Minister of Iraq. So he may be a future guest on Biota Live, but certainly I'm hoping to get Justin on in the near future to talk about... He said that he's been heavily evangelizing artificial life throughout Iraq. So we may have future consumers of the collective uh, book project that Dick and I have been a part of, because I think some of that vends into what's going on in Iraq currently. Wouldn't you say, Dick? Well, that's wonderful news if they can actually start thinking about things that aren't bread and butter issues. It's in the uh, Kurdish part of Iraq, and they seem to, I mean, I would have thought that it would be a, you know, a central target point, but they seem to be operating with relative security currently, and hopefully we'll hear more information from Justin when he's uh, near a phone again. Um, but yeah, certainly a shout out to Justin Lyon and uh, what he's doing evangelizing biota in uh, far-flung parts of the world currently. Dick, I now have in my news and notes, divine action and natural selection is out. And I have been uh, this evening perusing through the text. I, I'm quite overwhelmed uh, currently having read, um, well, having skimmed through the first half of it. Yes, uh, can, uh... You, can you just give some outline to folks <laughs> listening in? An outline. Well, let's start with how much you were expected to read in one evening. It's uh, 1,069 pages long. <laughs> okay, and it has, what does it have? 45 chapters. So uh, basically, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting book. Uh, what happened uh, is that the, orig- the way I got involved is this. Joseph Seckbach asked me to write a chapter for it, and I apparently... Uh, turned in the first chapter uh, that he got for the book. And then a year ago, he and I met in an astrobiology conference. We just happened to both be there. And he confessed to me that the publisher reneged on the contract. And uh, and this was after all the chapters had been turned in. Mm. So uh, it was a rather curious situation. So he asked me to, if I could help him rescue the situation. So I said, okay, I'll try find another publisher uh, but with one condition and that is that there be dialogue in the book and uh, in the course of this we ended up adding a couple of chapters getting an artificial life perspective on the questions of uh, what is life, origin of life and questions like this so it was uh, kind of fun uh, bringing in this perspective uh, uh, into the debate between creationists and scientists and as I've scanned through it this evening, I mean, for folks listening in, I think I dialogued maybe four or five chapters. And so my exposure to the book was only relatively small up until this evening. But as I read through, as I scanned through the first 500-odd pages, the thing that dawned on me was that this was something that could be used from anything from kind of engineering on one extreme, because lots of engineering courses now have philosophy and these kind of broader things oh, right. as part okay. of the degree, all the way through to um, quite orthodox religious studies. I mean, it has it has something from that entire spectrum. I mean, there are astrophysicists. Oh, yes. the, the surveying is phenomenal. And in terms of potential, um, and I'm thinking maybe third year, fourth year, undergraduate and postgraduate related reading material, 
I can see a number of courses that would selectively choose from the book, you know, maybe half a dozen or a dozen of the chapters for their particular courses. Do you get that feeling as well, Dick? I hadn't thought of it that pers- in that perspective, but uh, yes, uh, you know, the the amazing thing about it, in a way, is that the uh, you know, there's a general notion that uh, there's a battle between creationism and science. But if you look at this book, you will find many quite legitimate scientists in various fields uh, who uh, are in their in various degrees, in various ways, are creationists. And uh, there's a full spectrum of people rather than just two extremes, which is the way it's usually uh, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, positioned. Uh, You know, for example, you mentioned the astrophysicist. The astrophysicist just retired as head of the Vatican Observatory and uh, does quite legitimate astrophysical research. Uh, and I assure you, he's also a devout Catholic from his uh, from his writings. So uh, you you get a whole spectrum. Now the other thing we did in the book uh, is the debate between creationism and science is usually phrased in terms of uh, United States Bible Belt Protestantism uh, versus whatever you know, uh, and uh, what you find is that actually uh, every major religion has its creationists in it, probably. And uh, I've also come to the opinion that if you take most people and you scratch the surface, you'll find that they're fundamentally creationists. Uh, and the, I guess to put it one way, the lessons of Darwinism have far from permeated our civilization, no matter what religion we're talking about. I mean, certainly scanning through, my sense was, um, particularly the, the Muslim creationists, the fellow in particular who um, stopped Roy Plotnick from contributing, I reading his text, I got wow. the sense that um, there was a fellow, I've, I've forgotten the fellow's name, he's a Turkish fellow, uh, who wrote yeah. Plotnick when we were discussing with Roy about participating, he said, well, if this guy's on the book, I really don't want to be a part of it. And having read his chapter... I got a chilled sense that Roy had actually had some interaction with this fellow in the past. I do get the sense reading through, um, I mean, this is really a question to to Gerald more than anyone. I mean, Dawkins does do a surveying of uh, a a wide variety of kind of fundamentalist religions. He isn't just sticking with regards to... Oh, you mean his book about about religion? I I haven't read that book, so I don't know what's in it. I mean, do you think that's a, a fair assessment, Gerald, with regards to Dawkins in particular? What assessment exactly? That he just sticks with the U.S., um, a particular uh, Bible belt of U.S. Protestantism, as, as decla- uh, you know, explained it as. Yeah, I wasn't talking about Dawkins in particular. I was thinking more like uh, uh, the uh, people associated with uh, the Discovery Institute in Seattle, for example. Now there's a uh, there's some uh, uh, you know there's extra focus on that of course for a number of reasons first of all because uh, the United States is uh, is an exceptionally religious nation considering the uh, you know its economic uh, situation in the world. I kind of disagree with that. You see, I, I think when you come to the question of mechanisms evolution of evolution and fundamental belief that 
we are evolved creatures and evolved through the sequence of uh, organisms that uh, is laid out fairly well now in uh, phylogenetic trees. I don't think, I suspect 99% of people on Earth don't really swallow that. Now, by, I don't mean they, they wouldn't say they'd agree with it, but I don't think they live their lives as if that's the case. Yeah, but, you know, even, for example, I know it's a difficult subject here, but uh, politics. In, in a lot of other countries, uh, you know, it's not, uh, it's not an issue really so much. I mean, if you look at, for example, even here, where the, uh, the main party is actually called Christian Democrat, but if the, uh, if the, what, the what country are you calling from? The Netherlands. Netherlands, okay. And, uh, if, if, uh, if the, 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 the prime minister here were to, you know, say something in religious terms, in religious terms, it would be it would be sort of considered, you know, uh, not not really appropriate, and, and that's been the case for for a long time because it it sort of alienates. Meanwhile, in the United States, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, you know uh, religious toned political discussion. Well, that's curious because you see, I just got a uh, a freebie mailed from the Netherlands called. Uh, uh, ISM Review International from the International Institute for the Study of Islam in the Modern World, uh, and uh, uh, this is obviously a, uh, uh, a propaganda piece sent out by uh, somebody who's got a lot of money to send this to all the professors in Canada. I guess uh, it's a it's a slick magazine, and uh, it makes us wonder about what's going on in the Netherlands. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Having lived in the U.S. and also when I first moved to the U.S., I stayed with a fellow and his family who were uh, quite strong creationists, and I followed their um, mm -hmm. hyper-politicization as they became even stronger creationists. I attended the fellow's wedding um, only a few months ago. But my sense is that these are very isolated pockets uh, within the U.S., and in, you know, in cities, you would Where find... Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Finish up. Yeah. I mean, I think what happens in the U.S. is really a caricature, and I find this particularly with regards to my family in Australia, who's never been to the U.S., that it's very difficult to get a sense of what the U.S. is actually about remotely. The reason that there are, um, you know, political icons or caricatures is because there there is very tight groupings of money, which is one of the points that I make in, in Dick's book that is funneled up towards these organizations, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the people that are contributing the money in all places believe exactly what the folks at the top are saying. There is almost a, a kind of <laughs> monastic view with regards to this, which I think is completely false. To a certain degree, there's a, there's a skewed view of the United States because probably, uh, uh, probably because of eight years of Bush, but... Uh, you know, on the other hand, the, um, the the whole notion and the the phenomenon of a mega church is something that that you know it's characteristically United States. You don't find mega churches around Europe, I don't think. Uh, how about like, the Roman know. Catholic Church? Well, what's yeah, the okay. what well, old church? <laughs> the U.S. doesn't uh, have any large churches, though. It has a large number of small ones. Exactly. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I mean these these huge buildings and and uh, and you know essentially. Uh, Preachers in uh, you know um, uh, on front of thousands of people at the same time. I don't think that really versus, happens. Versus the, the cathedrals of Europe. 
I mean, we are talking over each other, but I mean, Europe has yeah. a number of quite stunning Gothic cathedrals all over it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which has fine. a very strong <laughs> visual impact when you go into European cities. But I want to bring Jeffrey into the conversation okay. because he's in the process of defecting from the U.S. by all accounts. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. I'm in Vancouver at the moment, which is just over the border. So what's your theory with regards to all this, Jeffrey? Oh, well, you know, I, I, there's definitely a lot of the churchiness in, in the U.S., uh, for sure, but there's also a lot of the other, and I think it's, a, it's really a distinction between different parts of the U.S. Um, having lived in, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and San Francisco, most of my professional life, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on a different side of the, uh, you know, the equation. Um, so, um, but I think religion does play a, a large part in, in American politics and American life, in, in at least in the media, whether or not it's really a part of our daily lives. For, for most of us, I'm not sure. I but think increasingly, and being part of new media, I find this very strongly, the, the old media is, you know, it's, it, it's increasingly becoming meaningless. And this is actually a great battle that comes through this election primarily, that the two major parties have put a lot of money into old media, completely neglected new media aside from, you know, tacitly touching it on occasion, much to their peril. And I think the interesting thing with regards to when people talk about the media in the context of old and new in terms of politics and uh, religion in particular I think will be addressed probably within the next two election cycles in terms of the emergence of new media. Now, you could argue that YouTube and these kind of things were part of that as well. But it's certainly an interesting phenomenon that is in the process of change currently. Yeah, Obama is spinning, putting ab- advertisers in video games, apparently. Certainly. Politics is, of course, you know, you're trying to uh, address the masses because they vote. So, you know, the masses are most easily addressed in a broadcast medium and the old media are broadcast. Mm-hmm. But people are increasingly not watching the old media. Yeah, I, I still mean, think you've got a significant population of people who, who really do, and and there's a lot available. I mean, I don't watch, uh, of course, the uh, the American media directly at all, but uh, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube, of course, and and every little uh, snippet you've ever seen on TV is on YouTube in, in a few minutes anyway. Well, I think the nature of a snippet and everything that's on TV are, in fact, at opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, what what you see in terms of snippets is, in fact, again, particularly with regards to U.S. television, a caricature. I mean, whilst I used to watch PBS in the U.K., my feeling is that every snippet that I see that my family from Australia who's never set foot in the U.S. sends me on YouTube you know, is in no way characterizes the kind of viewing that I do. Moving on from this, Divine Action, Natural Selection, a fantastic book, out on Amazon very shortly. Are you tracking how it's coming over to the U.S. and Europe, Dick? Are you tracking how people can get copies well, of it? Oh, well, physically, the paperback is scheduled to arrive in North America uh, mid-December, about December 15th. The hardback was just printed, but it's not... Yeah, you know, they send it by book. These are heavy books. <laughs> <laughs> from Singapore. Jan- yeah, from Singapore. We'll arrive in January. Yeah, you know, we're hunting around for people who want to publish reviews of it. <laughs> so an interesting, an interesting idea that I had, particularly looking at the way Dawkins publicized The God Delusion, speaking of American media, was actually to go on uh, American talk radio and uh, the Fox News Channel and these kind of outlets 
and actually have a, an instigatory kind of dialogue. And that was relatively successful for him with the God Delusion. I mean, my well, understanding... Of course, but he's already a visible scientist. Do you think so? On Fox News? On uh, yeah, I mean, if you got if you got an into Fox, fine, <laughs> you know. Certainly, certainly, they might be interested in this book. But see, I think the the point I'm trying to make though is, uh, if you what this book does that goes beyond the previous books. Uh, oh, for example, uh, here I've got one right here, which is debating design by Dembski and Roos. Okay, uh, Dembski is a uh, an American creationist, and Roos is an American philosopher of biology. And uh, they've got a book that claims to be debating design. Okay, uh, I've read it cover to cover, and there's no debate in the book at all. <laughs> okay, what it is is a set of chapters of people talking past each other. Certainly. One will make a statement. Another, in their chapter, will make a, st a statement that contradicts it, but they never discuss it, never discuss, well, what about this contradiction? <laughs> okay, we try to achieve some of that in this book. Uh, and the other thing which, uh, you know, we have, uh, we have Jews and Muslims and uh, Catholics and even some Protestants in, in the book, uh, so even even some artificial life developers that are completely and, and godless and, and wandering. Yes, who had some rather surprising points of view. I never would have thought uh, in advance. You know. You Do you also have representation from the, from the non-religious or not? Oh yeah. Is that yes, all, is have, all uh, the religions represented? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We've got Prothero giving a nice chapter on uh, the uh, the evidence for transitional fossils, uh, which is often an argument. Used uh, used by creationists, uh, we have uh, uh, Tanner Edis, who uh, uh, is a tur uh, uh, Turk, who argues against Muslim uh, creationism. He's in Kansas, though. He's he's not a Turk in Turkey. He's a Turk in America. Well, but he, yes, I so. <laughs> he keeps well, I'm, 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 I'm always called an Australian, and I think it's perfectly artificial. I mean, my, my, the thing that I liked about Tanner is that he's all throughout the book, and sometimes he's he's the voice of reason, and sometimes he's the voice of kind of wandering ideas. And I mean, the, it, yeah. I'm not sure how many things he dialogues on, but he he seems to be in all the right places or at all but, the right time. But he was also a little disturbed about my chapter, which criticized the book he wrote. <laughs> As you might be. <laughs> okay, so uh, you know it's uh, we 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 go around in many many uh, we go around the questions many times in many directions in here. Now it's very incomplete. Uh, if uh, we could have used another year of dialogue, and the book would have been twice as big. <laughs> so that that begs the question whether a sequel is the. <laughs> uh, well, let's see where this one goes. <laughs> Give it a month or two. Certainly. Uh, the the thing is uh, that the questions is I, I we had a couple of people uh, who refused to write for the book that when we asked them because they didn't want to appear in the same book with creationists certainly. and the well not certainly you see the problem is that I I might have shared that attitude a few years ago except that the entry of creationists into what you might call the academy uh, 
despite you know first of all it's an historical fact if you because science rose out of people who were uh trying to study nature to to uh to glorify god i mean that was that was part of the original idea of science going back to the uh, mid middle ages and 1600s 1700s but uh in the modern context it is cambridge university press itself which not only published this book, Debating Design, between Dembski, uh, who is a creationist, and Michael Roos and the chapters they put together, but they also published a, a monograph by Dembski. Uh, so the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. Uh, and uh, we have to debate and confront creationists in the academy now, not, uh, 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 not pretend that they're marginalized. Well, whilst I don't want to talk too much with regards to Roy Plotnick's particular objection, certainly I found reading the fellow's chapter who Roy objected to specifically was not actually part of the broader dialogue associated with the book, and I found it actually quite chilling, his response to Tanner specifically, and the fact that he hadn't actually embodied the whole spirit of the book with regards to uh, sometimes swift but at least honest dialogue. And yeah. that was my, my point with regards to... Uh, to Roy specifically. Now, now, the three fellows from Turkey who are, you know, very, they are probably the most extreme creationists in the book. However, it's curious reading what they write because basically they have perfected the skill of scouring the scientific literature for doubt expressed by scientists. And any doubt expressed by a scientist is amplified into a creationist point of view. And they're they're absolutely superb at this skill, <laughs> and they flabbergast the number of people with how good they are at it. Unless you understand the claims from authority, I mean that seems to be the the whole root well, of their argument is that they find one person and then say this person is an authority and thus you know of course, yes yes <laughs> but but uh, and in fact that's a curious point of view because you see. Many many creationists find the justification for their views in science. Now, we can argue whether they're misreading the science, though. But uh, but the curious thing sociologically is that they appeal to the authority of science to justify mm -hmm. their points of view. And this go I, I'm reading a history of the origin of science uh, uh, of Western science now, and it's uh, one of the themes that is continuously there is trying to keep science, or what was originally called natural philosophy, the handmaiden of religion. Uh, mm. In other words, you know, theology comes first and, 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 and uh, the uh, uh, science second. Uh, but this is a very uh, 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 dangerous, from the point of view of people who want, want to maintain their, their views, it's a very dangerous balance because that handmaiden cannot, can get out of hand. And you get this opposite effect then where the re people in religion appeal to science for their justification. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really fascinating to watch this play. And, and the other thing that's become clear, the, the more history I read, is that these arguments are thousands of years old of and course. haven't been peddled. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah. they've sold a lot of books now, and they'll sell a lot of books into the future. <laughs> <Yes. on that. laughs> 